Welcome to Light Trees and News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. I'm joined by Meredith. Hello. Hello. So I'm on quite a spiritual journey, as you know, Meredith. Yes, I, I was determined to make sure that the very first thing we talk about <laughs> is um, I'm concerned about your mental state. As you should be, frankly. Uh, I have decided, listeners, to binge watch every single Saw film since Saw 10 is upon us. Um, If it has not indeed already come out yet, I truthfully don't know. Did it come out? I think it's not yet. But like impending, incoming. it It might be next weekend. So I decided unwisely to binge watch nine saws. There's actually more uh, than that because there was the original short. uh, And then there's one that's inaccessible that's not streaming. And I believe it's Saw 7 that I would have to buy. So I didn't watch that one. Um, Oh, Saw 7 isn't. uh, Okay. That one actually makes me giggle because it's so stupid. I was confused um, yeah. because I thought Seven was Jigsaw. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess not. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I have watched too much Saw, I think most healthy people would say. Well, and- not just you didn't mm-hmm. just watch six of them. You watched six of them yesterday. Oh, I, I'm so sorry. Guys, I did <laughs> In 24 hours, yeah. I Because I'll say this about them, because I won't say much nice uh, things about the Saw franchise. They are mercifully short. They're usually like an hour, 40 minutes. So I was able to watch uh, six of them, and I started seven last night, and I'm going to finish it. Um, I have some like initial impressions I wanted to share with everyone, if that's all right. I know, Meredith, you have thoughts about the franchise as well. Yes, of course. And I think that you should absolutely share your thoughts while they're fresh and you've fully marinated in whatever strange... In blood? In blood. Yeah. And, and chemicals. In right. a bathtub. In <laughs> acid, the abandoned factory. Yeah. A lot of acid. A lot of blood. Yeah. A lot of, like, metal. Uh, yeah. I... They're not good. I'll just say that. For the most part, I would say they're, like, in the two-star range, which isn't to say they don't have value. I think they could be, like, wildly entertaining. I thought Saw 6 was really fun, where, like, some 45-year-old writer uh, somewhere in Hollywood was like, why don't we, like, uh, take on big insurance? And everyone was like, <laughs> all right, Bill, I guess we'll take on big insurance in the Saw franchise. Um Yeah, but this is the thing. That's why I think that one's my favorite, because much like the Purge films, I find how insurance works in movies. You cut out a little bit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, I think that movie, the movie version of insurance is like my favorite thing in horror films. Mm, Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Because the the annoying bureaucracy, the sort of John Wickian backstory of how all of these things work, like the way that they deny people claims in the Saw films and the fact that everybody looks like they're in a porno, as you described it. So look, I don't want to speak ill of anyone. I won't name specific actors in the franchise unless I'm being kind and I'm like shouting them out. But there was a scene specifically in Saw 6 that I sent to Meredith where it was Jigsaw's ex-wife and a lawyer, I think. I'm going to be honest with you. I am paying 65% attention at any given time while watching these films, so I could have those characters completely wrong. But 
there were these two very, very, let's say, attractive blonde, bleach blonde women uh, talking to each other. And I was like, this, if you had this on mute, it looks like a porn. It does. It looks, it looks like you're about to watch MILF porn. And I would say the acting is about at the same level. Again, I'm sorry. I'm just being honest. We're not using names. Uh, the acting is not good. This is like a team other than the original, which has some very good actors in it. Um, including Danny Glover, which is like, what, uh, other than that, the original saw, it is just like a parade of random character actors, quote unquote, but I almost feel like that's giving them too much credit. It's literally like who would ever be available if if a casting director called you and said, could you be ready tomorrow? Yeah, I think I called them Canadian that guys. <laughs> yes, perfect. <laughs> because it's so very obviously uh, Canadian casting because many of the actors are people I've seen in CBC television series um, and not even famous ones, like weird crime ones or sci-fi. And if I've seen you in a bit part on The Expanse, there's a chance you've auditioned for a Saw film. Yeah, I, oh my God, there's so much to discuss, but let me just say that I'm not a fan of these films, as I said, other than the original, where I think they actually had a pretty decent cast. Not a pretty decent cast, like a good cast. Um, And what I really genuinely like about the original is I think it's fairly unusual to have two male victims in a centralized location for almost the entire film. And that felt very unique. And I thought Carrie and Lee did like a good job making me believe these were like real guys. Yeah. I mean, the, the very, very low, I guess, level of difficulty is the way I would describe it of the first one is why it managed to turn into a thing that is, such a ridiculous long running franchise. Like right. they set themselves, they, they were like, all right, we're going to do a creepy two hander and we're going to have some other sinister yeah. shit happening outside, but it's going to be the increasing panic of these shitty dudes. And they're both <laughs> shitty. Dudes and who now we realize or that we realize later are shitty. And you that's know? what's like, so fun about it. Like figuring out the puzzle of you feel so sorry for them when they wake up together in the room and then you they, you realize they're both lying to each other, which is interesting and cool. And then you're finding out these little bits of their lives. And like, listen, every single one of these films looks like shit. I'm sorry. It, it, it really, really bad quality, um, badly directed. Sorry, James Wan. Um, so I'm not a fan of how it like looks visually ever. <laughs> like the color saturation <laughs> is like gross. It like makes me nauseous. Um, I'm generally not a huge fan of gore in general. I find it to be like, you know, in like the third act of a Marvel film, when so much shit is happening, you get bored. I sure do. That's how I feel about a lot of gore in a horror film. It's like so over the top, I sort of check out mentally. Yeah. Um, So to me, the best part of the original, which I should say I had seen the original Saw like when it came out, like years and years and years ago, uh, 2004. But 
my favorite parts of the original Saw are when the two dudes are talking, which I know is so, <laughs> it, like, such a weak review of this, but I think it, the character development is so interesting. We had never seen a Saw film before, so we had no idea, like, what the deal was, and subsequently, every Saw film since has been relatively boring, because we know the deal now. Well, and not only do you know the deal, uh, there's zero deviation from the formula. That that is so get started. odd to me that the way they approached this franchise was we're going to have a thread, right, running through all of these movies, and it's based on whichever character actor is available to book for the next film. And then we have to make it make sense in the timeline, so we'll put them in a shitty wig representing them 10 years ago, or however many years ago, last year, two years ago, three years ago, to make it make sense in the timeline. So now we're sort of like resting this franchise on a foundation of flashbacks, which is anticlimactic in itself because it's like, but we know everything that happens. <laughs> yes. Also, somebody did an analysis of this, I think, on Reddit because that's where these things happen. Of course. Uh, of the timeline based on what is being described in Saw 10. And I think they said that like all of this is supposed to have happened over like 18 months. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's so stupid. And I look, I know you disagree with me on this point, but I think it was like in Saw 6, a critical miscalculation to have Scott Patterson and Angus McFadden, I think his name is, uh, in like flashbacks and flash forwards. Because to me, they look so similar. I was getting confused. Oh, yes. Uh, no, not Angus McFadden, um, Costas Mandalore. Okay. Yeah. 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 You're right. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I know you think and you yes. have white man face blindness, <laughs> but so I'm telling a you specific problem for you. No, but I'm telling you, they like are similar enough where, and again, I'm paying 65% attention at any given time because it's saw, uh, <laughs> I was legitimately getting confused where I was like, so what is happening? Like, what is the deal here? I got it eventually, but I was just like, could you have cast someone of a different race perhaps? Or like even a blonde gentleman, like in the original Carrie is blonde. Lee is a brunette. Thank you so much. These men are now different in my mind. <laughs> That's all I need. I need like a little bit of difference. Otherwise. Yeah. I do kind of have uh, facial blindness for white guys. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's not a character flaw. I think it's useful uh, when it comes to recognizing the importance of what men are saying at any given time. Um, you which guys is not very much, don't understand but... <laughs> how much I struggled with Game of Thrones is what I'm trying to say. Like Game of Thrones was a fucking nightmare for me. <laughs> it took You're... me so long. I knew Sean Bean. I was like, got it. I know my man. Yeah. I know Sean Bean. But everybody else, I was like, which white man is this? I know. And it, at that some point, they're like, you know, it's the one with this accent. And you're like, I literally can't tell those apart either. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not helpful. <laughs> Not helpful. Uh, but I uh, figured it out. I figured it out. Um, so, but I will say this. Let me say something nice about the Saw franchise. Every time that fucking puppet shows up, I react like I'm seeing the Beatles for the first time. I lose my fucking mind and it's in a genuine way. I'm not being ironic. I think he is so funny and like what's weird about it is so the puppet is just 
the guy, Jigsaw, right, who is, like, speaking, communicating through this puppet to, like, I don't know, be theatrical? Unclear. Yeah, just freak him out a little bit. Unclear. Because, like, it's creepy when a puppet on a tricycle talks to you. So like, when Tobin Bell is when Tobin Bell is communicating through the puppet, fucking love it. And, like, the puppet's, like, a bitch, which I love. Anytime, like, <laughs> there's, like, I loved... I grew up watching Tales from the Crypt and I was in love with the Crypt Keeper. I thought he was the funniest guy ever, even though like he truly had the sense of humor of a middle-aged man. And I was like nine years old, like, ha ha, you know, like that was my introduction to comedy. Uh, But also 100%, like if I could go back in time and have a dream job, I would want to be in the writer's room Absolutely. On Keeper one-liners. I mean, I'm not even funny. I still want to be in that writer's room. I still channel the Crypt Keeper anytime I have to write like a spooky pun or something. I know I'm channeling like, what would Crypt Keeper say? Um, yeah. So anyway, so Billy yeah. the Puppet, uh, and I have a thought on this too, but please continue and finish. Yeah. So I, listen, I know people have a lot of like nostalgic attachment to this franchise and like genuinely love Tobin Bell as Jigsaw. I don't find him particularly interesting or compelling. I think the Billy, the puppet is super funny because they save all of like the good taunting bits for him. You know, anytime anybody wakes up in the nightmare escape room, he's on the TV heckling them. And I love that so much. I wish there was like, I wish Billy was like a magical creature and he was jigsaw. I see. I mean, that would be more, it would be fun in a different way. Or even like if there was a better, like more sense of relationship between Jigsaw and the puzzle, like instead of the complicated backstory of like his cancer and how drug addicts are all terrible and will ruin everything. And so need to be punished. All of that shit is so boring too. Like all of the medical stuff. I'm like, I don't want to watch this guy slowly dying of a brain tumor. I know. But so if we if we had if he had been getting the brain tumor and then developing a relationship with the puppet through like his brain damage, like and then somehow the puppet became yeah. an actor, like a, a, an actual actor in these things. Uh, That'd be fun. That would be fun. Oh, you so know what fun. we're writing? We're writing Megan. <laughs> oh, uh, shit. Damn it. <laughs> oh, it, they already did it and it was super fun. Yeah. Uh, but I, I so Let's take a moment for an appreciation of a thing that we've we've run into a couple of times recently, uh, but that I think people are getting back to, which is uh, horror movie bad guys who will read you for filth like a really amazing drag queen. Yeah, I always like, kind of want like a bisexual witch in the mix. Like I yeah. really like. One of my last favorite things about Marvel is Loki. And it's because Loki shows up like a pissed off drag queen and reads everybody. And I'm like, thank God, you know? You know, think about the other bad movie that we really enjoyed recently, The Pope's Exorcist. That demon reads Russell Crowe for Phil. A true (laughs) raging bitch. And it is like the funniest thing ever. Man, did we talk about The Pope's Exorcist? I don't think we did because I hadn't watched it yet. And wow, guys, if you haven't had a chance to pull this one up, it is straight trash and absolutely genius. This, I mean, all of the memes about Russell Crowe on the Vespa. I lost my mind. Lost my mind. Pay off. 
They just they open the movie with Russell Crowe, who I'm not trying to be unkind, is a large man now, zipping around on his tiny Vespa. And it is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Uh, I love it dearly. I really, really do think he like understood what the joke was about the movie. And they just like fully leaned into how stupid it is. And it is hilarious. And, uh, I mean, it's also, it's like a long tradition of, um, really, really talented actors that have this sort of like bruiser mentality, like very much in the sixties and seventies, these guys who were like Oscar winners, tough guys, uh, always ended up playing priests in like the trashiest movies ever. Like this is a total tradition for Oliver Reed, his co-star in, um, Gladiator. Uh, you know, it's. I don't know why they would just put George C. Scott in a priest costume and then be like, all right, cool. We've got this happening now. <laughs> um, but that's, I mean, he's, he's a, yeah, he's a large dude. He seems like he's having a blast. Uh, Doing it, the worst Italian accent you've ever heard in your oh life. Oh my God. And the soundtrack is weirdly amazing. Like it starts <laughs> out the song. The first song that you hear in the soundtrack is She Sells Sanctuary by The Cult. Like Mm -hmm. a true goth made this, was the music supervisor on this. And so, and it's like, it feels like an amazing first episode of a supernatural buddy cop movie. And that's basically what Father Gabriele Amort wrote in his like memoir, his like, you know, obviously mostly made up memoirs. Uh, so I'm like, I need a thousand of these. I need him. I need this to become like the midsummer murders of fighting demons. Like every time, you know, we've got to get, we've got to go to the Vatican. We've got to talk to Q. We have to get our special relic. We have to go fight this demon. Like I would really love if the devil was in the mix as well as like one of the buddy characters. Oh, if he's like, if at some point there's a mole. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, this, yeah. I mean, that would also, yeah, the the original buddy has to like, go on a special assignment and he gets paired with somebody who's like really trusted, but it turns out he's been the devil this whole time. Yeah. It's all I can, the last thing I'll say about it is as far as like it just being a brilliant bit of, of trash is there's a point where a possessed little boy screams at the buddy (laughs) cop priest, wrong fucking priest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With, such he's so mad guys incredible fury he wanted russell crowe and they didn't bring him russell crowe and he's like am i the only fucking intelligent person in this room oh god it was like that i imagine that it was very similar to when russell crowe threw that phone at a hotel employee oh yeah they probably discussed like what he was feeling in that moment uh yeah yeah so this is to say that i believe we were talking about billy the puppet yes so I am legitimately a fan of Billy. Like, I think he's wonderful. I just wish he was in the Saw franchise more. I'm on Jigsaw right now, so I can't comment on everything, like, after six. Um, And obviously, we haven't seen the new Saw yet. But I think when you have something that's such a high concept, like in the original, the original to me has, like, screenplay class writing prompt written like all over it no pun intended but like you know someone a teacher is like write a scene that takes place in like a centralized location the characters are trapped they can't get out and it's Mm -hmm. like a very high concept what saw ultimately became is a very high concept 
um, film, interesting, but ultimately everything, everything since then has been diminishing returns. So I would give the original like three and a half stars. I thought it was interesting. I thought the performances were good. The cast is really solid. Again, it looks like shit, but everything else like rises above that. But since then I've been bored. And I think that makes sense. I, I just can't believe that you're doing this to yourself. Like I know that there's a storm in New York and so it's not going outside. Um, so it's like you have nothing better to do, but it's just, that's a lot to put yourself through. It is. Uh, uh, yeah. Probably some like unchanneled um, hatred of myself going on there. I did realize that what's helping me understand the Saw films is Billy, the puppet, I've realized is Catholic. And since I've had that realization, everything really makes sense. Like his weird hatred of sex workers and drug addicts. Um, you mean, and you mean Billy specifically, the not, puppet, not Jigsaw. Yeah, yeah. Jigsaw just has a brain tumor. Billy the puppet is uh, basically the church mm-hmm. wheeling around on his little tricycle, casting judgment upon people. You know, really saying that people don't value life enough, like a real like life fetishist. It's like, all right, calm yeah. down. Yeah, he's very American Council of Bishops. Yes, very <laughs> that. I'm getting like that vibe from him. And once I understood that Billy the Puppet is a Catholic, I was like, ah, I understand Saw. I got it. Fully clear to me what Saw is now. So I'm going to finish that today, guys. Oh, speaking of Ophelia, who is upon us, the um, the tropical storm. I went and I got my booster shot this morning, and I just wanted to remind everyone that the new uh, uh, booster shot is out. It's now a yearly shot, so you just have to get it like when... I don't think you can get it when you get your flu shot. I think you have to wait, but... Oh, no, I'm getting the flu shot at the same time. Are you? Okay, yeah. cool. They told me that I couldn't. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, Mm. but yeah, apparently you can do that. We think, uh, and you only have to do it once a year now, which is awesome. So go do that. Um, as my friend who is an epidemiologist said that all of the preliminary tests suggested that it was extremely effective against the variants that it was designed for. And, uh, if you get it, the likelihood that you will have, uh, if you've gotten all, if you've been getting your boosters regularly, um, your chances of, of getting it, getting a case that's actually bad and, or transmitting it drop dramatically. That's so great. Um, and I know that I'm probably, I can't explain it more than that, but that's what she said. And she's an actual international global health professional. So yeah. And I'll it's, say it's every, safe and good. <laughs> every pharmacist I've talked to about it, they're also excited because I can't imagine how much they were getting slammed during all of this. And so it's real quick, everybody, sorry. A plane is landing on top of Meredith's building. (laughs) There she goes. Um, They were really excited because, you know, now they only have to deal with it once a year now. So I'm sure that will lighten their workload a lot. But yeah, I just wanted to remind everyone there's a new booster shot. Go get it. Uh, Should we talk about... Unless you had something else you wanted to add about Saw. Do you- no, no okay. I think, uh, you know, I don't take this as an endorsement to watch any of these movies if you have not I would not say watch the original. 
I would recommend the original because I think it is it has cultural significance and it does offer something interesting and new. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, and God, 2004 is almost 20 years ago. That film looks so fucking old, dude. That's another thing I noticed. Like, so I've gone from 2004 to whatever year six came out, right? And watching the quality dramatically improve over not that long of a span, like in the history of humanity, right? <laughs> like, yeah, it's not they made one a year for seven years. And when you go back to 2004, it's also really funny because like half the cast of Lost is in the 2004 one. And I was just like, wow, it was the same casting director for <laughs> the show Lost and Saw, apparently. Um, but it looks ancient, the film. I I bet. It's so wild. But yeah, I would still say worth it to watch. Yeah. Um, let's right. <laughs> talk about the Writers Guild uh, strike updates. Yes, very important. Um, so the, one of the main things I wanted to talk about that I think is deeply funny, and I think it is a lesson we should take to heart, is that not only did Drew Barrymore back down, and she is not bringing her show back, so did Jennifer Hudson and Bill Maher. And I think this is just a great lesson that bullying works and we shouldn't let up on these celebrities. You know, uh, some people say like, oh, when you post stuff online, it doesn't really matter. And it's like, well, this fucking did. Yeah, uh, this got results. People made their frustrations known and they got worried and immediately backed down because they knew that they were going to get a ton of blowback and they were expecting to get away with it. I wanted to um, ask you a question. I saw yeah. a friend of mine tweeted this, and I don't know if it's true. In fact, I think it's probably not, but I wanted to get your take on it. Do you think we've been getting updates about the uh, AMPT? I always screw up that AMPTP. AMPTP. I just say the Producers Guild. <laughs> like, <laughs> Between the Producers Guild and uh, SAG AFTRA, they've been meeting and we've been getting updates that supposedly these meetings are leaning in a positive direction. I will encourage everyone to remain skeptical unless you see updates from the Writers Guild itself. If you follow right. the Writers Guild East or West on Twitter, I recommend following them both. I only listen to their official posts. Even like people who I trust a lot, who I know are in the know of these meetings, Everybody puts their own spin on everything. So I don't believe anything until I hear from the guilds. And I mm -hmm. encourage everyone to do the same. Anyway, so uh, a friend of mine tweeted that he believes that these talks have started to go in a positive direction because of the UAW strike. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of put the fear of God into the producers because they see that there's this momentum behind organized labor. They're hearing that a lot of people are very angry at them for not paying writers and actors what they deserve. And now we have like the largest auto workers strike in the country happening right now. Uh, I think ever, right? The major American auto manufacturers yeah it's a it's big i don't know anything about where it ranks compared to others but it is it's huge big. and it is spreading and and that might John, be scaring them yeah. so i wanted to get your take on that it to me it sort of seems like different worlds but i don't know maybe they are paying attention well i i, 
I think that given the way a lot of people have thought about unions, um, which I think is very monolithic, you know, as a concept, they might think, oh, teachers union or state employees union or such a car unions or even SAG. But like conceptually, they all kind of bleed together. Mm-hmm. So the new like the fact that UAW president Sean Fain is in the news talking about how the car companies are offering bullshit and, you know, like foul mouth looks like your dad kind of dude at the bowling alley yeah. being really militant. Using the um, term class warfare. Yeah. Uh, has it adds, it does add a little spark to other union fights because suddenly it o- offers another opportunity to connect all of these fights together Mm -hmm. and so suddenly it's not I can't watch anything new my favorite show is it coming back it's like oh these assholes are the same as these assholes and yeah they're trying to fuck us well early on Fran Fran Drescher was very smart linking the strike to the larger organized labor movement and now we have the UAW on strike so you know, not to give like Fran all the credit, but she did sort of lay that foundation where she was like, and we are also linked to other organized labor movements. And suddenly we have the UAW also on strike. So there is that sort of natural connection where it's like, ah, it's happening over here too. Yeah. I do think that the, the fact that nothing has happened in September and that, um, the naturally, yes, people are, suffering a lot. Like, let's not pretend that this isn't having horrible material consequences for um, the writers and actors who haven't had a paycheck in months. But there, the fact that people are not backing down, that there is still visible vocal support for SAG-AFTRA and for the WGA, that I think that the studios are now in a position where they recognize that they have to write off another quarter yeah, for themselves. they just keep fucking and themselves. The longer it goes, so, the more they fuck themselves. Right. And there's their strategy of waiting it out and trying to crush simply through suffering is not working, but because they're all such bloated corporate entities they don't have the nimbleness that allows them to actually change course without causing massive headaches for themselves. Um, which like good more headaches for Zaslav and Iger. Good. Yeah. Get migraines. Absolutely. However, like the thought of these people arguing, it starts to feel very death of Stalin, like these corporate boards yeah. just fighting with each other mm-hmm. yeah. about <laughs> Like, like the 1950s communist power, uh, like communist uh, council that, you know, these things, they're just, they're crumbling from the inside. And I'm not, it's not time to get the downfall memes out yet, but like, well, I I don't know, like we're getting there. (laughs) They consistently keep trying, they keep doing the Trump thing where they keep trying to project that the guilds are disorganized and internally fighting. And it's so clear that they're not. (laughs) Yeah. But it's sort of like, no, no, they're clearly unified and y'all are the issue. Y'all are infighting. Y'all are panicking. Y'all know that you keep losing more and more money. 
every day, the longer this goes on, it's so clear that all of the disorder and panic is on their side. So that's been interesting. I kept waiting for like the public to turn on the guilds as like, you know, the public loves to be fickle and has a short attention span. And as you pointed out, their TV shows and their movies aren't being released when they want them to be. So I kept waiting for that resentment to turn on the artists. And it's so satisfying. You know, keep in mind, I'm extremely online and I know that my worldview is limited to that. But anytime there's like a deadline article or a Hollywood Reporter article that sort of frames something as like, boy, this strike is still going on because of the artists, like all of the comments are just like, pay them what they deserve. Right. And I I really liked to go back to the, the Drew Barrymore element of it and that these things is that there is clearly an acceptance of a broader sense of what this creative labor actually means. Um, because none of what they tried to say about how like, well, of course we can do this without writers. Like it just won't, you know, somebody will still figure out what to do. It just won't be the writers. And it's like, guys, that is not how this works. No, like, I mean, you, are a, you know, you were a struck program and you were on hiatus for the summer. So if you come back, you're breaking the strike. So sorry, there is no way around it. I truly think there are some like narcissists like Bill Maher. Bill Maher thought he could do his show without writers. Oh, I really think he thought that. And not only do I think he thought that, I think he would prefer that so he doesn't have to deal with unions. Like (laughs) any sort of unionized writers, like if he could cut them out, he would do it in a heartbeat. He's such a fucking raging narcissist. He thought he could do it. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, And I think the... You can connect this as well to the fact that video game people, like Fran Drescher is trying to get video game actors to strike too. Dude, she's a fucking machine. And yeah, and like Iger, and they just don't want to recognize, they really are trying to keep the unions like balkanized, small, manageable. And it's so clear that the old model for doing that doesn't work anymore. (laughs) And they're still like trying to peddle it and they've lost control of the narrative. And I'm sure they're panicking. We should also mention the UAW strike way back when the economic meltdown was happening. The unions conceded a lot of their what they had fought for over the years for the sake of quote unquote saving the country because of the economic meltdown the major manufacturers were like if you guys don't give this up we we're gonna have to close shop and it will destroy the economy even further so they conceded something called cola which is cost of living adjustment which means as like the years go on your salary is linked to the cost of living. So like as shit gets more expensive with inflation, you'll get paid more. They gave that up during, which was huge, huge thing that they gave up because they were trying to quote unquote, save the country. And they were promised once the economy gets back on track, we got you guys, we got your back. Should they have believed that? You know what? It was a crazy time. (laughs) Like Probably not. (laughs) But like it was truly Armageddon and they made the concession. It's done. Right. So now they're desperately trying to fight to get that back, which is a like basic worker. Right. So when you see cola, like a lot of them have signs that say cola, that's cost of living adjustment. Well, and um, 
not everyone gets cost of living adjustments in general. It's a it's a really important thing that unions fought for. Um, but when you look at real wages versus inflation, what is it? People the average people haven't gotten a raise since like the late seventies, essentially. It's insane. Yeah. So uh making sure that there's that like keeping some sort of cost of living adjustment in any sort of any large scale contract with workers is essential for keeping people out from falling into poverty thanks to inflation like we've seen in the last year. Yeah. Um, and honestly, it's something yeah. that the the writers and actors are fighting for as well, because every single industry should have their own version of COLA, right? Or well, if and, we don't have like a federal if, protection for it. And if there's, and if you think about the industries, the people that are fighting for a cost of living adjustments in their contracts um, will be living in places that are almost certainly some of the higher cost of living yeah. because those colas are not necessarily connected to where somebody is forced to reside in order to do their job. Right. So whatever some whatever the contract ends up being, it might not actually be a cost of living adjustment. Yeah. <laughs> but certainly whenever I got a, a cost of living raise <laughs> yeah. in media, it was in like New York City. <laughs> Please enjoy your two percent raise. Oh and I'm God, like, do you know you. how much my rent went up yeah. last year? Like, I'll tell you more than two percent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, so yeah, I I think it's really exciting all of these developments, um, and I'm encouraged by what I'm hearing in terms of how the producers are releasing statements now with the guilds. That's encouraging that these are joint statements now. They were releasing like competing statements before, and that was like, oh no, <laughs> like, they can't even get on the same page with a like a memo, you know. Um, but it goes for however long it goes and it's our job to support the unions. And that's yeah, like period. As always. Period. Yeah. Um, until everybody gets what they deserve. If it has to go on another month, it has to go on another month. That's just what's got to be done. When you look at what's at stake, this is nothing. Like yeah. being an extra month so that several generations can have living wages. We can do that, fam, right? We can get together and support them. We like living wages. We, we love like it. people having food. Hey, call us crazy, all right? Say, I was listening to these two crazy broads on a podcast, mm -hmm. and they said, get this, people deserve food. And I was like, what? Who? Oh, shocking. Communists. So, do we want to talk about Russell Brand? Uh, can we just say, like, he should get fucked? He should and get fucked. And kind of leave it at that. Uh, or we can talk, let's, we don't have to talk about him because I don't want to get into the fucking awfulness of it. Yeah. But I would love for you to go over what you you were saying to me all week about uh, the system that exists around him. Oh, That yeah. has, seems okay. like it's changing. Because that part is That's way more point. interesting to me than there being a famous person um, who is that? Yeah. So this is a, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Anytime there's a expose about a very, let's say powerful comedian in this case named Russell Brand, a lot of stories come out about particularly female comics who were working in the same sphere as Russell Brand, who were warned either by 
you know, managers or agents or other comedians. There's this whole sort of like ecosphere around the predator of people who are aware of the behavior and do nothing to stop it. So I posed the question to Meredith where I was like, let's say you, Meredith, decide you want to rob a bank, right? And you're like, but I need you to be the getaway driver. And I help you escape this bank robbery. I could be charged as an accomplice to a crime, right? So why, when a sexual predator like Russell Brand is revealed and we find out that not only did all of his agents know, not only did all of his managers know, that production teams knew, that other comedians knew, why are particularly agents and managers not considered accomplices to this crime, to these Mm -hmm. crimes? Because if you are fully aware of what is happening and, you know, whether you you hear it from him or there are emails or text messages, you know, why have we still in the Me Too movement only focused on the predator and not the system that allowed the predator to operate unchecked for years? Yeah. And, you know, this is the sort of thing where it brings back memories of watching Law and Order marathons on <laughs> TNT when I was in, in high school. Um, the, everybody would get charged if it were an episode of original Law and Order because Sam Waterston would be like, they're all responsible. They all raped these women. Um, and then he'd make some sort of crack about to whichever assistant DA he was talking to. And when they'd be like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, don't you think it's a stretch in the law? And he's like, this isn't about the law. It's about justice or some nonsense. Um, and then he'd drink some whiskey. Um, that was too involved. Uh, he, <laughs> but it does seem like I, it's ultimately because it's really hard to make these cases. I think it's hard to make these cases. And I do think there should be a high standard of proof, obviously. I also think there's sort of this unspoken thing that everybody knows, but nobody wants to admit, which is this shit is so prevalent that if we start doing that, if we start saying that agents and managers are accomplices, it's like, where does it stop? Because everybody fucking knew about Russell. Everybody knew about Louie. So I've told this story before on the show, but I'll say it again. I was an intern at the old UCB Chelsea Theater, and Louis C.K. would come in all the time to do sets. Everybody fucking knew about Louie. Every single person who worked at the theater knew he was a creepy predator. I had no power as an intern to stop him from getting booked on shows. So I would just warn the other girls who were working as interns not to be alone with him in the green room. Mm -hmm. Since then, I have read verbatim the same thing people did with Russell. They said, don't be alone with him. He's a sexual predator. And you see it a lot, a lot with comics that there's this whisper network everybody fucking knows. So to an extent, we're all accomplices, right? Because, But it's sort of like who has the power and who doesn't. And I think yeah. in, in, that, in those terms, CAA, you know, like major, major agents and managers who know about this shit have the power to stop it. They could drop him as a client and they don't do it. I think you're an accomplice. I mean, I think so too. But let's think this through one step further. It's not just that these people, like, it's not just this gutlessness. It's not just the sense of everybody knowing these agencies and these agents 
still want to be the go-to person for everyone else. Mm -hmm. And what is every other shitty comic who's done some bad things and hasn't either hasn't been caught or still like has his little nightmares about getting caught. Like you want those guys to be on your team. So the business structure is set up in a way that like, saying that you're not going to protect people who act like predators right. suddenly means that you don't have any business and you don't have a good selling point. Well, this happens when like an actress gets cast in something with a guy who has a, another actor who has a shady past and everyone's like, why'd she take the role? Why didn't she refuse the role? And I'm like, okay, so because he's a predator, she should damage her career and accomplish probably nothing to take a stand. I'm like, so we're asking people to damage their careers for what? Like, it's sort of like what you're saying where it's like the system is set up to punish people trying to do the right thing. But I I think that that's exactly what the incentive structure is. Right. If you, you are a more attractive agent or manager or business manager or any, you know, another publicist if you have demonstrated that you're a bit like you have an ability to protect people, think about how all of the really terrible men have the exact same lawyer as Johnny Depp. Yeah. It's like, you know, that they are, that you know, that means that they absolutely did it. Absolutely. Yeah. However, it also means that they know they're going to get off. Yes. And that is like, so it becomes this cycle. Um, and what's so scary and, yeah. about that and so depressing is I don't know how you fix that. I don't think, I don't know how you fix it either. Um, but when you think about it from the business side, it becomes clear that it is a wide, it is essentially a wide ranging conspiracy to cover up wrongdoing um, that starts at, we don't see things, we don't hear things, we don't know what's going on. And in some cases goes to deliberately aiding and abetting, say Russell Brand, um, having access to young women to take advantage of. Yeah. I want to be careful and I don't want to sound like too pessimistic because I do think like, for example, the Weinstein thing really did change the industry. Um, I think you have to make the cost of being a predator so high that people don't want to be associated with you. Yeah, I think that's true. Unfortunately, that also means that we get the system right or the situation right now, as I see it, which is that Unless you are a Weinstein level right. villain, right. it is very hard to get traction for bad behavior. You have to destroy the lives of hundreds of powerful, attractive, wealthy white women. Right. Um, and that is a high, that's a that's an impossible bar. That's to a reach. real high bar, which is probably why Weinstein's one of the only guys who really got nailed. Um but I wanted to really commend the publications who who published the Russell Brand expose because there was like three publications, I think, that came together and were sharing like resources. And I thought that was really not only like good journalism because they were very thorough about what they were reporting, but I thought it was smart in terms of like lawsuits because it's one thing you can if you're Russell Brand, you can sue one newspaper, but suing three is like not as easy. And I thought that was just Mm -hmm. a smart legal strategy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it also, um, 
I think it also makes it harder for him because all three of them might have worked together on publishing things, but not doesn't necessarily mean that all three outlets have the same information. Right. So each individual outlet could be sitting on any number of other allegations that they're still tracking down or are still considering publishing or are still, you know, working through the legal process. Like this is the first wave of things. Yeah. And Um, I just want to brace everybody as always where it's like, again, this is the tippy tippy top of the iceberg and I'm starting to see some burnout from like me too stuff. And I just want to say like brace yourselves because not only are there going to be tons more of these stories, it's going to be some comedians who you love dearly and sorry, you just got to burn them. You know, like yeah. it, it's a, a really huge problem and we're just starting to discuss it. Yeah. I read a really striking piece. I think it was on people somehow ended up in my eyeballs um, where there like some, somebody dug into remarks that Kristen Bell had made when she was promoting forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah. (laughs) She was like, I knew his reputation and, you know, we had all these scenes together, but like before the cameras even started rolling, I was like, if you try anything with me, I'll cut your dick off. Good. And I was like, yes, that is clearly. And he's like, he was very, very, Jason, you know, he's like suddenly was like very scared. <laughs> that's how you like seriously. Yeah, that's how you have to come at a guy like that. You just have to immediately kick him yeah. in the throat. <laughs> but I, but I also thought about it, and I was like, you know what? That in itself is extremely damning about how long people have known what oh, kind of person yeah. he is. Oh yeah, she's like clearly kind of prickly, and I don't know. I've always, you know, I hear weird like different stories through the gossip mills about how she has to work with and what sure. kind of person she is, but like. She is clearly a very type A person who does not abide. She doesn't have time to deal with his shit. Yeah. She's not going to put up with any bullshit from somebody. And if back in 2007, 2008, when they were making that movie, uh, she was like, you are not doing this. Like I am, I am a well-loved cult television actress who is trying to break out and you will not do this to me. <laughs> well, what I remember about Get Him to the Greek was Jonah was such an asshole. Everybody forgot about Russell. <laughs> and he was still being problematic and he was still being awful. But Jonah was such a dick. That's all I heard about like what an asshole Jonah was. Oh, and now we can talk about that because everybody knows Jonah's an asshole. By the way, guys, I know Somebody always has this note where they're like, well, if you know about this stuff, why don't you talk about it? So we don't fucking get sued. That's always the answer. Even if you say allegedly about this stuff, they can sue you. So everybody fucking waits till all of the reports come out about Russell. And now we can finally talk about Russell's a fucking predator. And also, like, this is the sort of thing. There's much bigger publications that actually have legal teams don't talk about this stuff. Yeah. Like, we can have our conversations about it, but if we said it on the podcast or we talked about this stuff on the podcast, uh, yeah, we would be easy targets for someone wanting to teach a lesson to people about pulling these stories out. As you will know from having listened to Meredith and I dance around the army hammer factor for like two and a half years, (laughs) (laughs) pre-allegations, we were like, um, 
so <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful. We don't have legal teams. Like we would get sued until we had nothing. So like you, you just have to be careful. I also learned this, like when I was a journalist, I had some pretty inflammatory headlines that I had a very wise editor be like, you absolutely, you have to be really careful. Cause he's like, most people don't understand how easy it is to get sued and how easy Mm -hmm. it is to like destroy a publication, like especially smaller lefty publications. Yeah. And even if you, the writer are, you know, can theoretically like hide behind, I don't write the headlines, you still got to be careful. Like factual accuracy and defense, like America, it's, it's rough out there. (laughs) Why don't we end every episode with America? It's rough out there. (laughs) And then Ron Perlman. (laughs) On that note, everybody, perfect segue. Um, This is a 100% listener supported show. If you go to lighttreason.news and smash that donate button, you can keep the lights on over here. Or if you go to patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny, that's another cute little way to support the show. And you can also leave comments, questions, uh, concerns. I know I haven't posted a new thread there in a while, but you can always go to the old one and just leave new comments. I'll see them. I get an email alert. Um, and I'm able to pay co-hosts like Meredith and all the hosting fees. And that's where your money goes. FYI. Um, you can follow me on all the social at Allison Kilkenny. We're both over on blue sky right now. You can follow us there. Um, and yeah, on that note, everybody, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Go get your booster. Here's Ron. The motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing? Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out.